planted by the writers and illustrators of the future. They've been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for the creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. Today we welcome back award-winning author Katherine Kovacic. She's got a new book that's come out. Uh, one of her books is now an award-winning book, too. And uh, we also talk about other stuff. It's a really fun chat. Here's Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Sherry. Great to be here. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, lovely sunny day here in Australia, so it's all good. Uh, ours is it's getting sunny again. It was raining this morning, but it was like, you know the kind of rain that all it does is just make it humid and wet, and then it disappears? That's the kind of uh, rain. It doesn't do any good yeah. during a drought. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what you mean there. That's, that's the kind of rain we had today. We've had a couple of days, just like the... It's like the humidity becoming drops and then burning mm -hmm. off as soon as it touches the ground and doing absolutely yeah. no good. Do you get uh, that well, too? I'm hoping for some big, big rain, big rain for you over there. I think you need some. <clears throat> I don't want flooding, just enough so we no. don't have a drought. Yeah. Yeah. Mother Nature doesn't seem to understand the difference. <laughs> been a couple of years of extremes down here too so I'd like to find that middle ground yeah um I mean we have lakes and rivers that really need some water <laughs> mm. yeah yeah and just think of the animals well that's right yeah yeah it's, um hopefully we're going to get a bit more rain before we get right into summer here but uh yeah it's a, it's a bit all over the place at the moment but fingers crossed yeah, we're heading into fall, so God knows. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, we usually do get rains in the fall, but but then it gets really heavy rain, and since it's dry, mm -hmm. I'm worried about the the flooding. Yeah, yeah. It's um, you never quite get that that perfect the farmer the farmer's weather is what I sort of like to think of it. You know, they just they just need just enough for the crops or just enough for the, the you know the the feed for their animals, but it never quite seems to just give them just what they want. So they're always always chasing their tails, trying to, to find that, that happy medium. Yeah, it's like, um, I, I don't remember the name of the show, but uh, they, the farmers hired an Indian to make rain, and he did. Okay. And then he forgot to shut it off, and it just kept raining. <laughs> and so they found him, and they said, can you shut it off? <laughs> it was a comedy, obviously. Sounds like Green Acres or something like that from the you know the fifties or sixties. I don't know. No, I think it was like Barney Miller. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was a police show. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just I, you know stuff like that. And then there was another one like I Dream a Genie. She did this. Oh, I forgot mm -hmm. to shut it off. Yep, yep. I think I think I remember the Genie one. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, we need we need a nice rain that doesn't cause flooding. That does soaking rain, just a soaking rain. Yeah. That's what you want. Especially our animals, they really need it. Mm. Um, speaking of animals, um, how are your dogs? 
The dogs are very well, thank you. I'm just, just thinking about filling up a little paddle pool for them because they're starting to hit the warmer weather, but they're, they're very happy campers at the moment, thanks. And um, I gather your cat is there in the room with you as usual, so... No, actually, she's in my brother's room under his bed. She likes to go under okay. there, too, because it's it's nice and uh, cool, I guess. under that's what, mm-hmm. She goes under my bed when she wants to hide, like when uh, we're vacuuming or some, making some noise. Right. And she goes under his bed when, to be cool and to attack his feet. Okay. <laughs> I like a cat with priorities. Oh, yeah, she's got it all down. <laughs> She just, she just has everything. She runs the apartment. I mean, it's hers. We just happen to that's, co-inhabit with yeah. her. <laughs> that's what cats do, isn't it? That's that's just part of being a cat. Mm-hmm. Having your minions do your bidding. Exactly. Oh well, and it's just, the the funniest thing is is my brother gets up very early to go to work, and mm-hmm. it used to be she would jump on his back to let him know that she's hungry. Now she sits on his stomach staring at him. When he wakes up, all he sees are these two eyes and the cat ears, and she's staring at him. And he's like, get off my stomach and I'll get you your food. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's guaranteed to get you up and moving, isn't it? Waking up to have the cat giving you the the hard eye. Uh, but but he's got, she's got her tail wrapped around him. I mean, she he's uh, he's putty in her hands, so it's really funny. My tough brother is like a mush with her. I love it, love it. <laughs> yeah, I love pets. I love animals. Um, yeah, me too. Well, well, you were a vet, right? That's right, yeah. I was actually just thinking when you, you mentioned your brother, you know, one time I, I had a, you know, it was like late at night and I had a trucker, like a trucker kind of guy come into the, the clinic, you know, this really big tattooed guy and I'd, I'd sent the nurse home and I was there by myself and he walked in and he had tats up his arms, you know, he was wearing like the singlet sort of top and I thought, oh, you know, drugs out the back, is this going to be a problem? And he had big meaty hands and then he opened his hand and he said in this big gruff voice, I found this kitten on the road. Can you look after it? Aww. And he had this tiny little white cat that was like so small, you know, it could literally curl up in the palm of his hand. And I thought, well, that t- that shows me, doesn't it? Jumping to conclusions about people. And, you know, and he'd stopped his truck when he'd seen this little thing and brought it in. And I thought, oh, melt my heart, why don't you? Oh, that's so, that's what it reminds me of something. When I was a really little girl, we lived on the street, and back then the uh, road, the street signs had like a little hole in it. Uh-huh. There's like a, a street. Uh, it would have the street sign on one side, street sign, and it would be sort of like held by screws or something. And birds used gotcha. to put yep. nests in there, and uh-huh. the baby bird fell out, and my brother and I found it. And we didn't really know what to do, but we knew not to touch it because then the mommy wouldn't recognize it. Sure. Even though we were, I think I was seven and my brother was like five or something. Oh, wow. We both knew that because our parents taught us. Mm-hmm. So we're like, what do we do? What do we do? we got to save the baby. And this guy came on a big motorcycle and it was like, 
<laughs> oh, and we kind of back up from him because yeah. he, he looked kind of like one of the scary guys from the movies and stuff. And uh-huh. and he he came off. He took his helmet off and he walked over and he says, "What's going on?" And in a very high squeaky voice, and I was little, so I already had a high squeaky voice, but it was probably yeah. high and squeakier. He said, "The birdie fell out, and we're trying to figure out how to pick it up." without, you know, getting the mommy yeah. mad. And he said, oh, okay. So he he took his glove, and he very gently put the bird into his helmet. <laughs> and he said, okay, lead me to the way to your parents' place so that it can take the baby to the vet. And then they'll, uh-huh. they'll figure we'll figure out a way to put it back with its mommy. And I mean, and so we went over, and I we we told introduce. <laughs> he, he told us his name was Ted, and he was really nice. Uh-huh. And we introduced him. <laughs> it, it was the only time my brother and I ever talked to a stranger, but it was to save the bird. <laughs> and um, and so uh, my my dad came out, and he's like, "Hi," and he and the guy explained because we were just talking so fast my dad didn't know what we were talking about (laughs) (laughs) and um he he thanked him and he went and he um he got one of his shoe boxes because my dad used to get floor shine back then he threw Uh his his shoes out got the box he the man transferred the bird into the box without touching it and my dad uh gently put the lid on he had already put holes in it uh-huh. and um he thanked him and he go and the guy wrote his phone number on um on a piece of paper and handed it to my dad let me know how he is and he wrote off on his motorcycle we never he my dad let called and let him know but we never saw him again that was the entire experience with him but isn't that the sweetest thing? You never guessed that somebody that's a tough motorcyclist would care about a baby bird. Or even two yeah. kids that are jumping up and down trying to figure out what to do about this baby. Mm, and obviously it made a huge impression on you as a little girl. You know, you said you were only seven and yet, you you know, it's just right there in your mind so mm-hmm. clearly. So, yeah. Yeah, because you just, it taught you... Not to jump to conclusions. At least it taught mm-hmm. me not That's to right. jump to yeah. conclusions. Yeah. <laughs> um, my brother's like that too. Neither of us. Because it's just like people say, oh, people with tattoos. No, people with tattoos, 95% of people with tattoos are great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And now they're just people. You know, it's like 95% of people are great, you know. Yeah. And, and there's now even more than there was back when we I was a little girl. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I just uh, it, it, you shouldn't judge books by their cover. You actually you shouldn't not. judge people. Uh, you know, yes. that's that was one of the lessons I learned at seven. Not bad. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's pretty good. It's a good lesson to learn at age seven, I reckon. Yeah. I don't know if my brother remembers it because he was very little. I, I think he yeah. does, but I don't think he... I mean, he remembers some things about that time and other things he does. I would say, do you remember this? No. Okay. 
because <laughs> um, there's a, he's like uh, two and a half years younger, so there's that mm-hmm. weird gap there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I wanted to, you know, catch up and find out the new things that are happening. First, I want to let you know that I read uh, the book we talked about, The Portrait of Molly Dean, and I loved mm-hmm. it. I mean, I couldn't, I read it in, like, I don't, I don't even think it was two days. I think it was a day and a half. Uh, <laughs> I just kept reading it. It was like, uh a day that I wasn't going to be um, doing anything, that I started reading Uh it. And I just kept reading it and reading it and reading it. I would eat and read it. And (laughs) it was just hypnotic. (laughs) Thank you. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. That's wonderful. Thank you, Sherry. I just loved it. Um, And I also read the um, second book, which Landscape. Yep, the shifting landscape. Shifting yep. landscape. That was really good. I learned a whole bunch of stuff. I didn't know about um, the Aborigines in mm-hmm. Australia. I mean, I know about them. I know who they are and everything, but I didn't know about the colonialism of your country yeah. as opposed to the colonialism of my country, which I know. It, it mm-hmm. was a good lesson, I think, that you taught. It was fascinating. What what inspired you to write that? Well, um, as you know, it's the same protagonist, Alex Clayton, and I'd wanted to take her out of Melbourne, and I particularly wanted to take her to that part of, of regional Victoria because of the... I mean, all of Victoria has a really rich Indigenous history, but the, the area there particularly fascinated me, and there was, there was some particularly bloody con- conflicts between the settlers and the Indigenous people there. Um, that to a degree it, there is much more awareness now people are still still really uh, you know discovering more about the the bad past of, of history but um, it, so I wanted to I wanted to shed a little bit of light on that I mean obviously that's not my story to tell so I'm telling it sort of through the eyes of my my white Australian protagonist also discovering aspects of that history. But one of the things that particularly fascinated me about that area was um, the Gunditjmara people and their system of aquaculture, of, of farming and harvesting eels, because I think hardly anyone knows about that. That's become a UNESCO World Heritage Site down there now um, in the, the uh, Hamilton area of Victoria. And, um, and so that was something that I really wanted to highlight, the richness of that history. And, and therefore what was, what was lost um, when colonial settlers moved into that area and, and to a degree what's been lost from our collective memory because you can go and visit these sites and, and some people do know about them but a lot of people don't and so that was one of the really great things uh, about the feedback that I was getting from that book was people saying either I didn't know that was there or people saying I've always wanted to visit there and now I'm going to. So that was, which was kind of what I wanted to do, just sort of turn the spotlight onto to that aspect of, um, of Indigenous and to a lesser degree, colonial history. It's very interesting. I just, um, it, it sort of reminds me of um, some of the uh, indigenous people in our country that were, uh-huh. there was great nations. There was incredible civilizations created by, in both South America and North America by our indigenous people. And, yeah. And it, it really has didn't come to our knowledge until 
I'd say the 60s or the 70s. Uh-huh. It's sad that, you know, it, it the way it the, the way they've been treated in our country is horrible. Um they're sort of uh getting it back together because of the casinos. Um once uh-huh. they, they made that a law here that uh-huh. uh Indian uh Lands can be used. The reservations could be used for casinos. That uh-huh. that that helped their education, and it helped get better water and food, and um, a better way of life. Because uh-huh. a lot of those people were suffering for generations. Did did you have anything like that in your country? No, um, there's certainly um, lands have been returned to the to indigenous people to indigenous control. Um, for example, Uluru Ayers Rock uh, is now uh, indigenous controlled. So um, we have nothing in terms of like the casino sort of thing, but in terms of handing over management of land back to the people, that is that's an ongoing process really. Um, so it, it is happening um, in terms of finding that finding ways to support the communities. Um, to to better finance them, to better educate them, that can be really hard, particularly for very remote communities. You know, there's just not that easy access to to mainstream things such as, as easy education. Although we do have we do have School of the Air still in Australia, which I guess is a bit different now that we all have sort of more internet technology. But um, since sort of the the early 20th century, uh, remote Australia kids have been able to access what, what was called School of the Air, which was literally a teacher on sort of like a, um, a ham radio kind of setup. So there's, there's always been that kind of connection, but it's, it's really getting that support out to the Indigenous communities that proves a bit of a stumbling block. And of course, it's difficult now because um, we're, in many areas, they're trying to you know, protect the Indigenous communities from COVID-19. Yeah. And so that has stymied, you know, supplies and things like that because it's about protecting the more vulnerable people in those communities as well. So it's a, that's really an issue at the moment. Um, but it's a, you know, I think Australia is, is to, some, to a considerable degree behind the US um, in um, in terms of sort of redressing the wrongs of the past, I guess. Oh, we're still behind. I mean, you were talking yeah. about returning land. They we they still haven't done that. These this, oh. these these reservations were what was allotted to them by the government. Okay. Um, uh, it's still controversial, and it's still mm. something that is um, try. They they're trying to figure out the best way, especially in South Dakota and places like that. I mean, those lands were ripped from them. Um, mm. It just it it no, you we're you're ahead of us. <laughs> Believe me. <laughs> uh, it the, that they did that so at least they have a decent education and and, and uh-huh. they also can learn about their own culture and they have cultural. Uh, they're, they're still tribes. They still have their cultural circles. They still have that. They, uh-huh. So they have that and. And they're trying to bring one of the things that the Spanish, when they first came to California, wiped out was their language, um, and the English added to that when they came west. And um, so that's one of the things that's been trying to 
be given back by the elders is the language to the children and things like that. Because um, okay. there's so few of the elders who still know the language. So the uh-huh. few, it's like, uh, to relate it, it's like there's so few Holocaust survivors to get the idea and understanding of what the Holocaust is about. Somebody like Steven Spielberg has a film uh, thing where he, um, he films the Holocaust survivors telling the story to teach future generations and current people uh-huh. what happened during the Holocaust. Well, it's even worse situation for the indigenous people of our country because there are even fewer people who know the language of their yeah. different tribes. And language is everything to them. Absolutely, and I think it's, it's very much the same situation here. Um, and, um, you know, certainly while there are academics who, air quotes, co- you know, collect languages and, and um, document the languages in terms of Indigenous people who speak those languages and who can preserve those languages, that's, you know, it's increasingly difficult. And that's something that, as you say, is is crucial, is crucial to, to preserve languages, to preserve her- heritage, because these are, these are um, people with oral cultures, you know, that's, that's their history and heritage is contained in their language, um, and so losing losing traditional words means losing part of that heritage as well. That's right. And that's that's just a travesty. That's a travesty. It is. It is. Uh, it's one of the most the biggest horrors about colonialism from all the different countries that did the colonialism, because it just it basically stole their history. Because if you steal, like you said, their oral language is what they didn't have written language. They had an oral tradition, which they, yeah. they the elders still try to preserve. Um, uh, you know, the Hopi dance that's very famous in Arizona. That was part of it. That that's part of their language. It's not a dance. It is storytelling. Uh, it's yeah. it's so important. Or the Hawaiian dance is famous in Hawaii. That's also their storytelling. Uh, it it's so much more than just speaking. Um, and it, it I think that we owe it to the future of their culture to help any way we can. Yeah, it's 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 difficult because you know you. you Speaking from a position of effectively of white privilege, and you 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 want to help, but it's it's at the same time you don't you know you, you want to facilitate, but not step in you know and say well we're going to do this because it's you know no no it's uh, it's, it's yeah I wouldn't uh, no I w- I wasn't saying that I just no mean, I know I know I know <laughs> it's, I completely understand what you're saying it's yeah. um but yeah it's it's how how can we help how can we help how can we raise awareness what can we do I so, think. I think one of the reasons why I'm so sensitive and when I why I ate up your book was when I was in college, I was studying archaeology, which has uh-huh. the upper umbrella of anthropology. And I was the head of, a co-head of the anthropology club. And I shared an office with the head, they used to call it the American Indian Club. Um, this was way uh-huh. back. <laughs> it was in the... It was in the early 80s, so it was a long time ago. Uh-huh. Um, and I actually got 
uh, she was a lovely woman, and I usually I got this great education. I talked to her about Jewish history, and she talked to mm-hmm. me about American Indian history, and we were like, it was like two years. I had two years education directly from somebody who knew what she was talking about, and we would help each other with our things that, okay, we're going to do a, you know, a powwow. What do you think the best way, well, we've got to do it in Central Calm. Yeah, that's a good idea. Oh, okay. And now we're talking about my stuff. And we're, I mean, it was like these great exchanges. And, we're, and she would tell me exactly how it would, the powwow would work and what would, what would go into it and all this. I mean, that was my first introduction. So I read books and afterwards uh-huh. and I, I mean, it was a personal connection, and at the same time, it was part of my education. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it was like really, and I got to tell you, we shared an office that was the size of a closet. So. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I, I know what those university offices could be like, so, yep, I know exactly what you mean. So, so to be honest, it was like we were... We were hot, um, <laughs> but we had a lot of work to do, so we, we we figured a way to do it, but we became really close. <laughs> great, great. I know, but it just, it's, uh, that's another thing your book reminded me of, that it had been a while, and I hadn't thought of it, and I'm like, oh, I kind of miss her. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do miss her, not kind of. <laughs> But anyway, it's just kind of funny. Um, but that was how I started. By that and my um, Western Civ in university, not in uh-huh. community college, taught me more about California and California history than I had ever learned. Um, because a lot of it, like I said, was whitewashed. You know. Yeah. You know, the missions yeah. and the what the missions did and. All that. I mean, I was going to missions for uh, day camp during the summer for most of my childhood, and I had no wow. idea what they did there. <laughs> Gosh, that's incredible. But yeah, very much the same thing um, in Victoria. I think with with the Indigenous past, and uh, but that was one of the the other reasons for for sending my protagonist there because as an art dealer, the artist that she was dealing with in that book was Eugene von Girard, and he was. You know, many of the artists in that period, if they painted an Indigenous person, it was that more sort of ethnographic kind of, you know, record of, of you know, the native people. Um, but Von Gerard was very empathetic and sympathetic to the Indigenous people. And so when he included them in a painting, um, he included them as people, as the people of the land. Uh, and he, you know, and he, you could, you could see in some of his paintings that he was aware of their plight and aware of how they were being treated, even if he was, um, not perhaps in a position, you know, because he was a, you know, a jobbing painter to a degree. You know, he relied on those colonial settlers, what we call the squatters and the squatocracy, uh, for his money. So he wasn't really in a position to say anything about it. But you can certainly see um, that he had empathy and understanding for the plight in, in the art that he produced. Yeah, I, I can understand that. It's sort of like Ansel and. Ansel Adams in my country. Yeah, <laughs> he yeah. was like he was a very, he was a photographer and he was very sympathetic mm. to indigenous people too. Um, 
he was mostly a natural photographer. He mostly took a uh-huh. lot of natural, but he took a lot of beautiful pictures of um, indigenous people, too. I mean, if you learn these things by going to museums <laughs> and yeah. looking at the pictures. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, I, when you're working on your... Um, do you get art books, or do you look up online, or do you go to the museums? How do you get your art history for your character? It, well, it, it depends. Um, after I was a vet, I actually have a PhD in art history too, so I, I have a very, very varied academic career. Um, so I, I have a reasonable knowledge of Australian art. So um, for, for my protagonist, you know, it depends. Sometimes the artwork is just background stuff. So if she's going to value a collection, you know it'll be on the walls. And then we can kind of, I can think about the people who own that art and I can structure their collection accordingly. Um, I have a fairly extensive library covering a lot of subjects here, so often it will be, you know, if I need to look up something, I can find it here. Um, otherwise, obviously, museums and things as well. But if I'm, you know, as I said, Von Gerard was a particular choice because he spent several years working in that part of Victoria where I wanted to set this book. So he was always going to be a part of the story and he did these magnificent landscapes and what I would call um, country house portraits, so the house in the middle of the in the middle of the landscape, so where it's more about the the house and the power of that white family rather than the the landscape around it. So he he was always going to be a part of it. So that was that was kind of already given for this book. Um, in Molly Dean, obviously there was that different art school that we were looking at, which was the the Meldrumites. So that was an early twentieth century. Um, movement, sort of the Bohemian set in Melbourne during the, the 19, late 1920s, early 1930s, and that was a tonalism. So that was sort of going to be the background for that. Um, so it, it really just depends, you know, on, on the mood I want for the book, um, where we are in the setting, what I want Alex to do. So if, if she's going to go to an auction, do I want her to be bidding on an ex- expensive, really expensive, valuable work, or is she just, you know, making ends meet, sort of buying and selling? at the cheaper end of the market. So it just depends where we're going with the story. I love her, Alex. I do. I love her. I was a little surprised um, that her buddy was married because I didn't really get that from Molly Dean. <laughs> no, no. it's um, so, And you weren't meant to get that from Molly Dean, so I'm, I'm quite pleased about that. It's a very... Um, his relationship is very fraught and it's very it's a very difficult relationship so it's not something that's talked about very much uh, it does as you say it comes out obviously in the the later books um, but no it's a uh, it's an estranged relationship I guess is perhaps the best way to put it so that's why he doesn't sort of come across as a, a very married person okay yeah I was like oh okay <laughs> I just, I just finished this. How come I don't remember? My brain is not that bad. I mean, geez, what? <laughs> I think I think in Molly Dean, I think she, um, his wife got mentioned once. So it's yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I just. I if it. it mm. I, I guess I didn't pick it up. I just didn't no. get it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I was like, oh wow. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> yep. Just they're they're just they're you know it's the the classic old art schoolmates and I think that I think that was really interesting the idea and I always wanted to have um sort of a um a sort of male female protagonists who were just good friends and that was really interesting that that was some of the feedback that I got after Molly Dean was that people were, oh I was so glad that they were just friends and that you didn't 
put them together at the end of it and have them kissing. I was like, because, you know, this is something that, that you know, I, I have guys who are friends, you know, and I'm sure you do too. Yes. And, you know, whereas in every book it seems that if there's like a male-female combination at some point, you know, there's going to have to be this, this you know, relationship. But there's always, I mean, part of the fun also of a book like this is that there can be uh, that will-they-won't-they they kind of tension thrumming along in the background. Um, and never really going anywhere, you know. It's that that kind of jump the shark moment for the story, um, as you've seen on on numerous television shows yeah. when the protagonists finally get together. It all falls in a screaming heap, doesn't it? Well, it depends on the couple. I mean, it's funny because I was thinking you made me think of what a show I really enjoyed, which is called Burn Notice. Uh. And in the show, um, Michael and Fee were ex boyfriend and ex girlfriend, and all right. through the first season, it was just arguments about, you know, not getting together and her wanting to get together and him not wanting to get together because they hurt each other and blah, blah, blah. And even though they do get together later, it didn't make any real change. They were still Mm. the same. Yeah, fair enough. Yep. It depends on the couple. Go back to to Ms. Fisher. You know, we had Peregrine and James at the start of season two. You know, everything changed. Yeah, I was like, it was like perfect structure. It was like bring them together because it was obvious they were coming together at the end of season one. Yeah. And yeah. and bringing them together in a really really close moment. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly up. was. Yeah. They blew up, and then and then bringing them back together again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it was just. Well, you just okay. I don't know about you, and I'm sorry. This is. Um, spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen the new season of Miss Fisher. Just warning you right now. But I have to say this. Did you really think Sally and James were right for each other? Oh, definitely not. No, no. no she was. She was the rebound girl for him. I think you know that. So that the, you know that that's the rebound relationship that's never going to work out. So whether he went back to Peregrine or moved on, but you know, I guess Sally was that very traditional. 1960s country girl, you know, she set her cap at her at her man, didn't she? And she, that was that was where she was going to go um, until until she, you know, couldn't couldn't avoid the truth any longer. I guess is perhaps the best way to put it. And I, that time, James was still very much in love with Peregrine. I mean, it, it was obvious that he was. Oh uh, yeah. And when yeah. she stopped talking to him. And he's, like, desperate to get her. To, okay, you're going to help me whether you like it or not. We're all through the other two episodes he was pushing her away. Yeah, <laughs> the one where she finally it. decided, no, I don't want any more of you. No, 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 I want your help. You're going to help me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Typical. 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 <laughs> Typical male. That's it. But, no, it was actually, I thought, you know... Even James, though James and Peregrine made mistakes, I actually thought they were both pretty sensitive to each other. It, it, there wasn't any of the real, they were angry at the last episode, yeah. but they were pretty sensitive to each other through most of the seasons. I think so, I think so. And I guess that's, that was part of the fact that they, obviously they still really cared for each other. So no matter how angry and hurt they were feeling, that they, they didn't want to, to really hurt the other person any more than than had already been done. Yeah, yeah. It was a good show. It was a good season. I can't wait 
for I am pre pleased with season three come okay. Uh, Fingers crossed. Yes, yeah. I know. I know. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, my other show, which was in Australia and now is in New Zealand, is My Life Is Murder, and I just saw mm -hmm. the first two shows. Really good. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen the the next season yet, but yes, it's a, I love that show. It's great. Yeah, I mean, it's if you are a fan of Lucy and and you've seen her being interviewed, I think Alexa is much closer to the real Lucy than anything she's ever played before. I hadn't thought of that, but I think you're probably right. Yeah, because it, it has her her sarcasm, her her humor, <laughs> mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. a lot yep. of her is in there. <laughs> Anyway, it's just uh, so far so good. First two shows. Yep. Uh, but anyway, I'm hoping. I'll have to try oh, it's really, really good. And when you have a chance, really, really good show. Um, Great. Uh, the other thing, um, first of all, I want to congratulate you. You won an award. You want to tell them about it? Thank you. Yes. So, um, Sisters in Crime Australia. So you have Sisters in Crime US, um, and uh, we have an annual award called the Davits, which is um, named after one of the early Australian female crime writers. And this year, the Shifting Landscape, which was that third Alex Clayton book we were talking about, won the Reader's Choice Award. So that was a real surprise and an absolute delight because Reader's Choice is just to me that's that's a fabulous one to get because it means that people. Regular people have connected with my characters and story, which is just sensational. So <laughs> you kind of remind me of Sally Field. They like me. They really like me. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And I think particularly because the shifting landscape came out here in Australia, um, sort of April 2020. So that was literally it was literally the day that our whole country was sent into lockdown. So you know, it, as a book, it didn't get to have its bookshop moment on the shelf and things like that. And it's it's. You know, it's a it's tough at the moment in the whole book industry. It's tough in just about every industry yeah, at the moment. But um, so I think coming on the back of that year where, you know, sort of been thinking, oh, sales, what are sales doing? They're not doing much because, you know, people aren't going into bookshops because they can't go into bookshops. So that was so that was just really lovely to realise that oh, people had been reading it and they liked it. So, yes, definitely a Sally Field kind of feeling. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because um, I've noticed that my my paperback books are not selling, but my e-books are selling like yeah. crazy. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I mean, you don't get as much money with e-books, but <laughs> but mm -hmm. at least it's selling. You know, people are reading them. That's cool. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You know, I think I'm sort of talking to to publishers and things in the industry. They're saying that in terms of paperback books, the the really big names, you know, that people would buy automatically. You know. Um, uh, I'm trying to think, um, a, a James Patterson or, you know, a Michael Connolly or something like that, names that they know um, when they come out, they're, they're still selling. But lesser names, it's it's harder at the moment. It, they're selling, as you say, they're selling online. But in terms of bookshop, in terms of paperback sales, it's, it's a really tough gig at the moment. It's funny because I know that that's true and I, I can tell from my own sales, but I still prefer yeah. the book. So I actually have been buying the books. Um. Mm -hmm. Me too, me too. And I think particularly um, in Australia it's been really good because um, authors have been supporting bookshops because we've had a lot of, you know, um, in and out of lockdown things and, 
you know, lockdowns where shops can't open or where they can they can do a click and collect or, you know, a local delivery thing. Uh, and so everyone's been trying to rally behind local bookshops too, which is really great too, and local authors. So there's been there's been that sort of flip side to things. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I, I prefer I prefer having a book in my hand. I like I like turning the page. I like being able to turn back, you know, particularly if you're reading a crime book and you get to a, a revelatory moment or, you know, if you're really pedantic and you've got your editorial hat on so it doesn't make sense, which is me sometimes if I'm, you know, editing my own work and I'm kind of in that frame of mind. You have to flip back through the pages, you know, to find the bits that you go, aha, I knew it, you know. Um, so I, re- I, I love having a book. I love, and, you know, I... I have ebooks and I have my tablet, but it's much easier to stick a paperback in my bag if I'm going somewhere. And it's, yeah, I just yeah. like the feel of them. Me too, and I just like the feel of the book, the smell of the cuddling with the book. Yeah, I just yeah. I I'm that gener. I mean, I remember going to the library with my parents. I just I mean, it was a joy. You know, they yeah. they basically have at it. You know, go find what book you want. <laughs> Oh, me too, me too. And and actually, you know, we used to have the, there used to be like a separate kids' book room in our library, you know, that you could just, you know, go in and the adults turned right and you could just turned left into mm-hmm. the kids' exactly. area. And that was just my happy place. And um, and interestingly, one, you know, one of my favourite kids' books um, was a book called The Angry Moon, which is actually based on a, uh, a Native American legend. I think it was... It was it was an old book on the li- in on the library, so it was, it was like a 1970s release. But it won a lot of awards. I remember it had the the, the silver you know the silver medals on the cover. Um, but yeah, that and that was a beautifully illustrated book too. So I'd like to um, my I think after you know uh, spot runs and all those books, um, mm-hmm. the first book that I remember that I liked was Charlotte's Web. Great book, yeah. Uh, yeah, that was the first book. And then I got into the Bobsy Twins and Nancy Drew and... Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and Little Women. I wanted to be <laughs> Joe. <laughs> you know, it's just like, you remember yeah. the books that you fell in love with when you were little. Um, oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um... But the other news about that same book, you tell them. Well, um, it's actually the whole Alex Clayton series has been optioned by an Australian production company called Magpie Pictures. Um, And we are in the process, hopefully, of um, of making a television series out of it. Yeah. So um, it's it's early days yet, you know, and, and as with all these things, anything could happen mm-hmm. but we're all really excited about it um and you know expanding alex's world and expanding the storyline so um the the first three alex books will well slash have been condensed into an episode each um so lots more adventures for alex and her partner in crime john and her dog hogarth to come but um yeah fingers crossed so as i said early days yet and um as with everything else Postcode, particularly, I think funding is always a thing, and um, there are lots of lots of projects on various people's drawing boards at the moment. But we're all really excited. So, watch this space. 
and we will see how we go. That is so cool. Congratulations. I think that is Thank really you. great. Thank you. Yeah, like you said, uh, it TV, movies, it's the funding. The funding can come, the funding can go. So, you know, mm-hmm. cross your fingers and your toes yeah. and let's pray that it goes yeah, through. Yeah, and I think um, so. talking to, to people in that industry, particularly in the, the post-2020, you know, no one was doing much of anything in 2020 except sitting at home developing ideas. So there's a lot of things that are on drawing boards or in early development at this stage. So I think it's a, it's a particularly challenging environment um, for, for funding and getting projects up at the moment. But um, I think we've got a good shot. You never know. Touch yeah, food. I think so. I think so. I think it's a great series. Um, okay. Now, I know this will have no influence on the production, but do you have an idea who you'd like to play, Alex? Oh, gosh. No, you know, that's really interesting. Alex is so clear in my head um, that I, I can't sort of, like, I, I don't sort of see beyond that. I, I know who she is in my head, so thinking about actors to play her um someone sort of suggested a person and it was like no not not at all the the voice is wrong you know it's the wrong look so she's she's an interesting character because she's um because she can kind of slip on a mask in a way she's a she's a little bit grungy but she can float around that whole art world and frock up when she needs to so um i don't know i feel like i feel like i'll know her when i see her but uh at the moment she's just the alex in my head yeah, there's a. I'm trying to think of some Australian actresses, and there's there's a lot of young ones that because she's in her twenties, right? Yeah, thirties actually. Oh, yeah. she's in her thirties. Okay. Yeah. So there's there because I, I watch a lot of Australian and New Zealand television mm-hmm. and movies, so I do know your artists, but I just I yeah. can't actually picture grungy, but beautiful art. Uh, uh, expert, yeah, and just and yeah. not popping in my head. So I just was curious if it popped into yours. <laughs> no, no, as a, I've, she's she's always been in my head. So I've never never sort of thought of her as as oh you know that that's the person or she's kind of like that. So she's she's just Alex in my head. So got a bit of a job ahead of us there, but I'm sure that will that will figure itself out when we get to that point. If we get to that point. I remember listening to Carrie Greenwood talking about Essie when she first saw her mm. audition, and she's like, can we get her? Can we get her? Yeah. <laughs> I, I like, think that's oh. it. I think that's it, that you just, you know, seeing the person, you just like, yeah, that's the person who can do this. Yeah, that, that's it. And, of course, also I think, like, um, with, you know, the Ms. Fisher, it's that chemistry between the cast, so it won't just be about who is Alex. It will be about who is is. John, you know, who's playing opposite, yeah. so that you get that dynamic, because that's all important for a show, isn't it? That having that, the, you know, the the way the lead characters sort of bounce off each other. And who are you going to cast as the Wolfhound? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think again that the, the, the pro, I think I think we might end up. You might need to have like a stunt double, you know. So um, I think they'd have to be. It's definitely got to be a grey Wolfhound because, of course, you can have different shades of Wolfhound. But um, I think we'll we'll wait till we'll, we'll cast the cast the leading lady first, and then we'll get to the dog. I think. Since it says it on the back of the book, I can bring it up. When, uh, when he goes missing, and mm-hmm. the feeling Alex gets, I completely understood because I had a similar thing. I thought my cat 
had been let out by uh, maintenance people at my old apartment when I lived in L.A. Wow. And I felt just like her. My, I was in a panic. My heart mm-hmm. stopped. I was crying, and I was trying to find her. I was asking all my neighbors. I was running around looking in the bushes. Um, and Zena, the cat that I had at the time, was a foundling, so you know, terrified. I didn't know where she would go. If she, if she would run out the door, if she would run in the house. And I looked under, I remembered after a, a big earthquake we had, one of our cats went uh-huh. under my bed with all her claws up into the mattress. That's where we found her. So I looked there. She wasn't there. We fi- I finally found her in this pinchy little space under a desk that I had in my living room. Wow. And I mean, she was a kitten, but this space was really close to the ground. Oh. And I could not, I, I, it was the last place, I, I was just looking everywhere, and I finally found her all the way back against the wall under that desk. But it was terrifying, so I really related to Alex when he went missing. Yeah, well, I think, you know, certainly for a, a city dog, I mean, he's a pretty savvy dog, but a city dog missing in, you know, the Australian bush, you know, we were talking before we started recording about spiders and things, but certainly, you know, you've got snakes, you've got, um, well, it's not supposed to be trapping, but you've got the potential for, for a rabbit trap. Certainly, you've got, farmers are allowed to shoot any dog that they think is worrying their livestock, so even if he wasn't doing anything, you know, there's that. Um, but I think, yeah, just that, that fear of losing an animal, and interestingly, um, feedback on the book from readers you know there's a child goes missing in this book too and yes. no one has ever no one has ever said anything to me about how worried they were about the child but so many people like you have said I was crying when the dog went missing and I couldn't put the book down until I knew what was going on and in fact when I first submitted this manuscript my publisher rang me up the day after and she'd gotten to that point in the book and she's like, you haven't done anything to the dog, have you? <laughs> like, no, 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 no it's, it's okay, thank you. <laughs> she, was, she was furious at the thought that this dog might come to harm. So it's really interesting. It's, um, yeah, it's, it shows how important companion animals are to, to so many of us. Uh, and certainly because Alex is a quite a solitary person, uh, her dog is, is very much a, a, a central part of her world. So it was, a, it was devastating for for her when Hogarth went missing. But in my defense, I was worried about the child too. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. <laughs> I mean, I knew the child... I'm sure everyone else was. <laughs> I, I knew the child went missing because that was also in the little thing at the end of the back. So I knew the child went missing, and I knew the dog went missing, but when I actually read how the dog went missing and was totally out of character for the dog, that's when I, that's why I freaked out. <laughs> Well, I think it's interesting because I don't know if, you know, the idea of the dog and the child going missing in the bush is, you know, certainly there's a sort of a history in Australian art of paintings of children lost in the bush. I don't know if you see that in sort of American art of the late 19th, early 20th century, perhaps not to the degree, or I don't know, perhaps in certain parts of America, because I think there was this colonial fear of the bush almost you know the density of it and that the isolation of it and the strangeness of it um so you you do sort of see the lost child in a lot of australian art of that period and so of course that ties back into alex as a character and, and her world um it's so it's a really interesting idea and then to have have a dog go missing as well fits back with her but it's yeah it's 
fabulous stuff to play around with in, in a crime book. I think Catherine, one of the reasons is that he's so well-trained. I mean, he's so <laughs> really well-trained. I mean, he's so obedient. I mean, it, it just, it was, like I said, it was completely out of character for him. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, he's, yeah, he's not a lassie or an Inspector Rex kind of dog that you can give a random string of commands to, like, you know, you see the bad guy over there, you sneak around behind him, and when I give you the secret signal, you wolf and scare him, and then I'll jump him, you know. It's not that kind of a dog. But, but yes, he's, you know, he's her constant companion, so he, you know, they, they kind of just have that dynamic that if she says, hey, just, I need you to hang out here, just chill, he knows what just chill means. So he's like, yeah, okay. Um it's, it, and it's just that relationship that they have, which you know I think a lot of people do have with their with their animals. You know, they're they're constant companions, so they just they just mesh in each other's lives. Yeah. Do you have uh, any new thing that you're working on that you can tell, or is it too early? Ah, gosh. Um, there's another Alex Clayton. I'm not sure where we're going with that yet, and there is a, another standalone thing which is quite different, uh, which is um, uh, another sort of crime, more, more, perhaps more thriller than crime, but um, that's, that's reasonably well advanced. So those are, those are the two, two projects to the fore at the moment. Cool. Um, and do you have any kind of um, events virtual, since you're still locked down, um, that are coming up that you're going to or any kind of other kind of events that maybe later on that when the world opens up again? Yeah, well, it's it's all sort of been moving the chess pieces because we've sort of had events planned and then events cancelled. So um, hopefully we've got fingers crossed uh, that we have a, a crime writing thing here called Bad Crime Sydney, um, and that was moved from September. It's now happening, hopefully, fingers crossed, in early December. So I will be there provided we are open um, to talk about just murdered and um, sort of cosy crime generally we're having kind of an afternoon tea sort of panel for the cozies um, I've got I'm, I'm talking on various online platforms about I had a true crime book out uh, at the start of this year um, based on a historical Melbourne true crime uh, so I'm still I'm still talking about that on and off in various places so there's a couple of online events coming up uh, in September with various library services um, so there's there's all sorts of bits and pieces going on. It's just I think we're we're just all trying to work out what the best way forward is at the moment. But fingers crossed for for bad crime Sydney particularly. We all want to get back out and start being in front of people and having that that interaction with real people that you don't quite can't get on Zoom to the same degree. Yeah, I know. I it's just um, we have uh, conventions here that I was going to every year. Uh -huh. Um, I used to do that in LA, and since I moved to San Diego, I started doing it here. And not so much Comic Con, but some local uh, conventions and writers uh -huh. groups and stuff like that. And it's nice to go online and go online for them. And I can still do the virtual Los yeah. Angeles conventions and stuff like that. But it's not the same. I like it's the only time I have contact with people other than my family. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you know, um, various panels and things that I've done, you know, we, we can have a much wider audience. We can get people in from other states and from regional Victoria, which is fantastic. But, um, you know, I think then there are a lot of people who still, you know, who don't like, don't 
don't enjoy sort of that sort of thing. And you just you just don't get that dynamic. You know, you can't have you can't have a a, a robust discussion with everybody because you know with Zoom it, it focuses on the main speaker, so there's always that little app while someone else tries to get their two cents worth in. And you know, you so you can't have a really dynamic group discussion. And I think as a speaker also it's hard to know if, if people are engaged or if you're just boring them to tears. And so I hope I don't bore people to tears, but you know, it's, it's with Zoom, sometimes like, oh, are they awake there? You know, I don't know. So anyway, it's all good. There are, there are pros and cons for, for face-to-face and pros and cons for Zoom, um, I guess, as long as people are interested. But um, definitely for, for conventions and things like, you know, Bad Crime Sydney, it's, it's a tough gig to, to try and put a whole convention into a, an online thing. You know, you really you really need people coming out and and seeing others face-to-face because that's what we go to these things for, isn't it? It's not just for the panels. It's to hang out with all the crazies who are just as nuts about our favourite subjects exactly. as we are. Exactly. Yeah, there's just something special about going to a convention. Yeah. You watch all the people it. wandering in their costumes and you're like... You know, you you, you you see old friends that go. You meet up only at the conventions. It's just, yeah. You can't get that virtual. I mean, I can meet up with my friends virtually, but it's not the same as being able to say hi and see them in person and sit down and have lunch with them. You know, just <laughs> that's it. That's yeah. it. And you, you know, and, and writing things. All the great new authors that you discover and all the books that you buy when you go to a, you know, go for something like that. That's that's what I'm there for. That's you know, hearing new voices and different things. And you know, that you wouldn't necessarily tune into a Zoom part of a a convention. Because you think, oh, I don't know, not so much. But if you're there and, you know, you're not going anywhere, you say, yeah, I'll go and sit in on that panel. That sounds kind of interesting. Or, you know, you're browsing browsing the bookshop and you think, oh, that's an that's a interesting sounding something. I don't know who that is. I'll, I'll have a read of that one. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot that we miss out on without that face-to-face interaction. We miss it. I really do. Mm. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, we're coming to the end. Um, we've done it before, but so people can find you. Can you give your website and your username for the different kinds of social media that you're on? Sure. So my website is just katherinekovacic.com. Um, I'm on Instagram as Catherine Kovacic. I'm on Twitter as Kov, but you will find me searching for my name too. And on Facebook, I'm there too. Um, doing probably a bit less on Facebook now, but I'm still there. And there is actually a Hogarth the Wolfhound page on Facebook as well. Oh, I didn't know that. I just joined that. Yeah, my publisher told me that Hogarth needed his own Facebook page, and we had a very strange conversation because my response was, but he's a dog who doesn't say anything. What's he going to do on Facebook? And they said, no, the dog needs a Facebook page. So the dog has a Facebook page, um, and you can find him there. And so usually that he gets cross-posted with a lot of the things that go on my own author page, and sometimes he gets get some dog posts up there and some things of his own too so you'd be surprised you'd be surprised i used to have a blog with my late cat xena and her blogs were actually more popular than what i was writing for me Uh, no i am not surprised at all you know what if i put a post up on my author page and it also goes up on hogarth the wolfhound page it will just about be crickets chirping on the author page while it's going you know, 50, 60 likes on the Hogarth page. So I completely understand That's what you're saying. That's the weirdest thing. <laughs> I like, and she doesn't speak. Um, it's just her, well, she's gone now, but, I mean, unfortunately, but now I have pie. Um, but um, it was just her adventures, you know. Yeah. Just, you know, but still, 
people like a pet. That's it. That's it. Yeah, and I think we we all need we all need lightweight distractions at still at the moment. So you know, just a dog doing dog things or a cat doing cat things. Yeah, have at it. Yep. I know. There are days when that's all. All I want to do is look at dog pictures on the internet, and I'm sure you're the same. I know. Just show me dog pictures. Don't show me any news. I don't want to read about it. Just dogs. That's I know. Fine. I've been doing Puppy. a lot of that and looking at nature, tigers mm-hmm. and and uh, dolphins and and yep. wombats and, and beers uh, swimming uh-huh. in the swimming pools here in California and um they always do that um yep <laughs> that, that's the kind yep, of I, I, mid-century modern houses is my other thing and yeah so just just show me some furniture and some architecture and yep don't talk to me about what the world's actually doing perfect oh, 1920s stuff too I like that yeah with you there, definitely. <laughs> anyway, I want to thank you for taking time out from your day and coming back on my show. I really hope you enjoyed our little chat. <laughs> Thanks, Sherry. Sure. I've had a blast. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with Sherry. Sherry. <laughs>